In this episode of the Brawn Body Podcast, I'm excited to welcome on Dr. Matthew Walco to the show. This week, we have him for two episodes. This first one, we're kind of going over a little bit of personal growth and development notes from Dr. Walco. He shares some insight that he has for students, for patients, for people, stuff he's learned from his clinical practice, from his time as a professor. There's all kinds of great insight and knowledge in there. We talk about healthcare reform, all kinds of great stuff. On Wednesday's episode, we're diving into heart rate variability, aka HRV, what it is, what it means to you, how you can track it, what trackers are the most effective, that sort of stuff. So awesome stuff. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it. If you don't know Dr. Walco, you're going to be very impressed with him. He is a physical therapist, doctorate of physical therapy. He is a cardiopulmonary certified specialist, and he has the NSCA CSCS or Certified Strength and Conditioning uh, Specialist certification. So he's pretty well-rounded. He's got over a decade, actually I think two decades of experience as a physical therapist. He has a family, he's a professor, he researches heart rate variability, he kind of does it all. So he's a very well accomplished individual and I'm super excited for this episode with him and excited to welcome him on the show. With that, all of our podcast episodes are brought to you by CTM Band, one of my favorite recovery tools. I've been using it a lot with my patients, especially tendinopathies and patients who have tight muscles, especially calves, elbows, quads, hamstrings. These products are used by the top performers in the United States. I'm talking Boston Marathon champions, Kentucky Derby winning jockeys, NFL players, the best of the best are using these products designed by Dr. Kyle Bowling. You might remember we had him on the podcast a couple months ago. So go down into the show notes, the description below, click that little link there and use the coupon code BRAWN10, B-R-A-W-N-1-0 at checkout to snag 10% off. Additionally, you can also support the podcast and everything we do here at Brawn Body by reaching out to us and inquiring about some of our services, right? Consultations, movement screenings, full personal training, online or in person, we do it all. So feel free to reach out to us with questions. We're more than happy to help you achieve all of your health and fitness goals. Now, with that, we're gonna turn it over to episode 101 of the Brawn Body Podcast. Enjoy the show. excited to welcome Dr. Matthew Walco. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So from what we've kind of discussed in the past, it seems like you've had quite the journey to put it lightly from completing your doctorate degree. You're a board certified specialist in cardiopulmonary physical therapy. You've also achieved the NSCA CSCS certification, which is one of the most recognized in the world as far as strength and conditioning goes. What led you to pursue those career paths and those certifications? Oh, gosh. Um, a lot of my story comes down to luck, to be perfectly <laughs> honest, being in the right place at the right time. Um, I thought I wanted to get into medicine originally. So when I was in high school, I actually thought about going to med school. And I entered into um, the running, so to speak, for um, a scholarship that would have paid for my undergrad and graduate school. 
I did some shadowing at an ER, mm-hmm. heard people screaming, saw people getting gunshot wounds fixed. And at 17 or 16, however old I was, I said, oh, I can't do this. So then I started thinking, well, I do love fitness. I was always, um, I was never a gifted athlete and was always kind of the runt of the litter on teams, but coaches always said I had a lot of heart. So I really like to put uh, time into that. So I figured, well, why don't I be a physical therapist? That sounds like a good way to be able to help people and go from there. Um, So it's kind of funny. I ended up doing my first, getting my first job at the same place that I would have done my residency had I gone to medical school. Uh, if I got into the, to that same place. So it was just a bit of irony there. And uh, I started at the same time a different therapist uh, who was also a new grad started there. And um, his start time was a week or two before mine. I can't remember exactly which. And there were two positions open. There was an outpatient situation open and there was an inpatient situation open. Mark got there first. He took the outpatient job. I was landed in the inpatient world and you know, 20 years later, I kind of love what I do. Um, I was thrown right into the ICU. Uh, so, you know, the CSCS came 10 years later. Um, right. But while I was actually um, working on uh, my first job for the first year, I ended up saying, well, what else can I do to supplement some income? Because that was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, and before I knew it, my wife and I were married. And before we knew that, we were expecting our first son. And I said, Ooh, I really need to start making some extra income. <laughs> so I ended up looking into the CSCS designation and earned that uh, pretty quickly after I graduated. Yeah, that's awesome. I like how you kind of pointed out that it was all about finding something that you love to do. And it sounds mm-hmm. like that wasn't something that you kind of initially expected, right? Sounds like you had the athletic background. You weren't necessarily like, all right, yes, the ICU, this is where I'm going to be. I'm going to love it here. Um, It's not, you know, an overly optimistic place, especially on your first day. Um, But it sounds like after you got going, you're like, actually, this is kind of cool. I can use things like exercise, like stretching, some manual techniques to actually make a difference in people who really need help. And who knows what those interventions could do? Who knows what it could prevent moving forward? So that's really awesome. That's really powerful stuff. It is. Yeah. And I was also very lucky to have some amazing um, mentorship when I got to that first job. Uh, the lead therapist in our job was actually somebody with 10 years of experience. And she was married to uh, a doctor who was the chief surgical resident that year. Um, so between the two of them, I was able to learn so much about the medical field, about the way that the human body worked, And of course, how we can apply that then as PTs. Um, so yeah, I sort of fell in love with what I did for sure. And talking about that application of piece a little bit, have you been able to combine that kind of cardiopulmonary background with the strength and conditioning background at all? I actually have been. And I think one of the best ways that I try to keep that in mind is considering precise exercise prescription for my patients in the hospital. Uh, mm-hmm. one thing I've noted all the time is that we tend to underdose our patients. We tend to not give them enough credit, uh, particularly when they're starting to recover. I mean, certainly the initial first day or two after a trauma, yeah, they need a little bit of time to rest and recuperate. But over time, um, it's okay to push people into the aerobic zone. It's okay to make sure that muscles that haven't been acutely injured maintain their strength and, and increase their strength. So that CSCS background really melds pretty well with that environment. 
Right, for sure. And uh, I think there's a lot of focus in the CCS, the cardiopulmonary side, on breathing and respiratory function. And that's something that kind of carries over to more conventional lifting quite a bit, is if your breathing patterns are all messed up and you don't know how to control your abdominal pressure through proper respiration, then you're never going to achieve your true potential as someone who goes to the gym, whether it's powerlifting, strongman, Olympic weightlifting. So it's kind of interesting how these little things that we don't really stress at all are so vital to that long-term success. And you don't really see too many people that kind of overlap that cardiopulmonary background with the strength background. But I think the combination is so crucial to long-term success. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it even comes down to simple things like uh, the folks that tend to work so hard in strength, you know, is their conditioning as good as it should be? Um, and like you said, are they training their respiratory muscles appropriately? Are they breathing appropriately? Uh, and I can't remember, I'm, I'm not giving the person credit right now, but there is a con ed program that's been around for years. And the basic tagline is nothing matters if you can't breathe. Right. And that is so true in anything we do. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and kind of with that too, I've treated a lot of patients lately with uh, cervical problems, first rib problems, even some shoulder problems. And almost all of them have this same thing in common that their breathing mechanics are absolute trash. There's <laughs> a lot of people who breathe more upper chest and that tends to be more of a stress response, right? And I don't know sure. if that stress response is kind of a pandemic related thing or stress of the world lately, or if it's just life in general, but it's been kind of interesting to see just how many people struggle with uh, breathing, something so simple, uh, yet it has such profound impacts on health and life in general. Enormous. And I think I've seen that throughout my 20 some years of experience. So I, I think maybe the pandemic is highlighting a little bit, but I think like you said, it might be a lot of life in general. Uh, today's life is just stressful and it's gonna impact us in ways we don't always think about. For sure. And kind of talking about that stress a little bit, I think you've probably been in a couple stressful situations yourself, balancing school, personal endeavors, family, all of that while pursuing some of your advanced certifications. So how mm -hmm. have you been able to kind of balance and manage all these different moving pieces that you have going on in your life? Well, it's a combination of a couple things. Uh, I would love to tell you that it is all strict mental and physical discipline, uh, <laughs> adherence to a schedule and that sort of thing. But to be honest, it's a framework of that sort of discipline, but it also hinges heavily on caffeine and luck. <laughs> and also um, making sure that you, you look at what is necessary to be done versus what's nice to be done. Yep. Um, like anything else, there are plenty of things that I'd love to be able to do perfectly, but what can get done appropriately? What can I learn from this? And then I got to move forward. Um, I can tell you when, when the kids were little, there were plenty of times, um, oh gosh, when they would go to bed, my wife would go to bed and I'd be up from 10, 10 p.m. to 2 or 3 a.m. finishing a project or, or writing a paper. Uh, <laughs> I remember vividly one time um, sitting at the nurse's station uh, right after uh, our first son was born and I was doing something else uh, for school at the same time, because of course I was, and I was drinking double strength coffee. So I had nurse's station coffee. I put coffee packets in there. And I, as I was sipping on this, reading a chart, I had those smelling salts that you've seen, like the weightlifters use. Yep. I had one stuck in my nose and I was asleep at the desk. I had a nurse come over and go, yo, you're asleep, wake up. So 
that should kind of tell you sometimes you get pretty burned out, uh, but it's all been worth it. For sure, for sure. Have you found anything that kind of helps you prevent that burnout more lately? Um, well, number one, I'm incredibly gifted with the, with the primary position that I have now. Uh, to move from a full-time clinical instructorship or clinical um, work uh, and in year 13 uh, to um, my current position as a clinical associate professor over at the PT program, um, that's really afforded me a quality of life that I can barely put my fingers on. Um, it's still a ton of work. I still do, you know, 70 to 80 hour weeks during the semester uh, while keeping up a clinical practice. But there are plenty of times where um, in the summer times I'm teaching one class at the moment at a shot. So really that reduces my stress load, allows me to do work a little bit more in the clinic, but it also gives me a different balance uh, to life. So right. that's lucky. And I think like you said before, if you love what you do, it's really not like going to work. And I know that's the cheesiest cliche in the world, but I found that it's actually true. Yeah, for sure. Something to give you a little purpose to every single day. So. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I have to say the students um, where I teach really make it worth it. They absolutely do. Yeah. Now, someone like you has been in healthcare for years and years, both as a recipient of healthcare and a provider of healthcare. We've been asking a lot of our guests lately to kind of offer their opinions and thoughts on healthcare reform. I think a lot of people lately have recognized, hey, some things in America, as far as healthcare goes, they need to change a little bit, but it doesn't seem like anyone can kind of agree on that direction of change. So we've been kind of brainstorming different avenues, different paths forward. Do you have any thoughts about what could possibly solve some of the issues we've been facing in a, the uh, American healthcare system lately? Well, I think, Number one, I'm probably not the smartest person when it comes to specifics, and, and I'll be freely admitting that, um, I think, but my advice might be make sure that we get the, uh, the guidance from the people that really do know what they're talking about, Yep. and not to put too fine a point on it, but I think that means removing some of the political um, pressures uh, mm. from the current two-party system. Uh, and I think it really looks needs to be changed from a, a policy driven thing from a politics side to a healthcare regime, which is really what it's supposed to be. And we need to take care of everybody. Yeah. Uh, I think if we take care of the people that are traditionally marginalized and, and poorly taken care of, um, we're going to see the entire health of the nation improve. Mm -hmm. And I think what people really need to be aware of is that this is a long haul. We're not going to see in one presidency amazing things happen. We might see the start of that amazing sort of thing. So I think the Affordable Care Act was a heck of a good start. But I think um, what we're going to have to look at is a generational change. Right. Uh, so that probably in 30, 40 years, if we do things correctly now, we'll see a big impact then. For sure. For sure. Um, one of the uh, other things that kind of goes along with that, uh, Dr. Hussey mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. He suggested that um, there's a lot of talk about this uh, system of universal health care. And he said, sometimes it's not the access that's the problem, but the quality of care. And he talked about this concept he had of creating a database of every single patient that is treated by the medical system and everything they get gets published as a case study in an online database. So then instead of our research being something in a contr controlled lab setting where everything is picture perfect, it's actually real world application. So he kind of hit on the point too, 
that sometimes what we see in daily practice isn't always what we see in the lab research setting. And I thought his idea of kind of creating some online database of every patient is a case study because all the information's in an EMR already. We can encrypt data. We can kind of hide patient identifiers. That was an idea that really stuck out to me as like, wow, this is really cool. And I've not heard anything like this before. Um, have you kind of seen something similar in the sense that sometimes what you see in your uh, daily treatments in a clinic type of setting differ from what you see in research type settings? Or is there pretty good overlap there? Um, I think it varies, but I think certainly I can think of settings where, you know, what the research might say and what you see boots on the ground are, are different things. And I think uh, I'm not surprised by that. Um, I'm not a trained researcher. You know, I haven't gotten an academic doctorate at this point, but I've done a, a fair amount of research and been pretty well uh, mentored. And I think it makes sense. You know, when you look at certain trials and certain studies, there are going to be, like you said, controlled aspects of things that uh, just aren't controlled for in real life. So there's going to be a discrepancy. Um, I, I think that idea of using everybody's information de-identified would be helpful. I know that to a certain extent that's done um, among healthcare systems. You know, certainly Medicare has that sort of information pool to a certain extent. But if we did have a, a universal healthcare system, I think that would allow uh, an improved um, access to that sort of information. And it would probably help us make better decisions. Definitely. Right. And that, I liked that idea because it kind of went along perfectly with what you were saying, right? We have these populations of people who, you know, they aren't getting access to medical care for one reason or the other, but those same people tend to be underrepresented in research studies. So if we can kind of kill two birds with one stone here, not only are we improving the quantity of people we treat, but we improve the quality of treatment they get at the same time. And we guide that evidence-based intervention kind of as we go. Yes, absolutely. And I think that would ultimately help, you know, really the people that need it the most. Like you said, I mean, a lot of medical people get into the fields because we genuinely just want to help people. Uh, and I think if you pulled anybody who works uh, in the medical field uh, anywhere, allied health, and they say, look, what would be your picture of heaven? It would be a non-payer based world. It would be, I identify what the patient needs. I give the patient what they need. I help them figure that out. And certainly there's going to be a proactivity to that and a patient activity to that. Um, but we don't have to worry about cost constraints. We don't have to worry about, oh, is this lab too expensive? I'm mm -hmm. more worried about, hey, we need to get something imaged because this person looks like they're hurt yep. and done. It would be wonderful. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it kind of, it's really been interesting to me. One of the patients I've been treating, he's from Nigeria. Uh, he moved to America and his perceptions of the American healthcare system when he came here and his realization of, holy cow, this is nothing like what I expected has just been shocking. So it's kind of amazing how, you know, we are looked at as such a great healthcare system. And there's a lot of things that we do right, but mm -hmm. there's also some things that we need to improve on. And we can't just focus entirely on the good without addressing the things that we need to better, so to speak. Absolutely. You're only as strong as your weakest link. And, you know, we've got plenty of links that really need to be strengthened. So, hey, let's tie it into the idea of weightlifting, right? You hit the stuff that's the weakest so that way you can make everybody else strong. If you've uh, you got a crappy core, your bench isn't going to go up. We need to fix those issues. 
Yep, for sure. Priority principle. So mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger lived by it. It worked for him. It can work he for other things. What he's too. doing. Yeah. So um, kind of along that line, have you learned anything else from your patients? What is kind of working with patients in that cardiovascular and pulmonary realm kind of taught you about life in general? Um, you know, I think there are some parallels uh, that you could make. Um, I think one of the biggest things that impresses me is how simple things can be, but not easy thing, mm-hmm. how things can be. Uh, you know, when you look at, people always ask you about how am I gonna improve my cardiovascular fitness and, and my status. A lot of it comes down to the basics. Move more, eat less, manage your stress in a productive way. And boy, when you write that down, it's three bullet points. You can stick them on one PowerPoint slide and wouldn't it be great if everybody could just read that and do it. It is simple, but it's not easy to do. And I think the same thing is a parallel with life. Um, One other thing I look at all the time, I'm heading into the hospital tomorrow. And I think the biggest thing that impresses me is how lucky we all are when you have your health. Uh, Mm -hmm. because it it can just vanish in an instant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And when you see patients who have six, seven, eight comorbidities, they're taking 15, 16 different medications every single day. Maybe they're on a ventilator. Whatever state they're in, all they want is their health. That's all they want. They want to be healthy. And so many of us have health. And so many of us squander that opportunity and let it fade away. We don't necessarily take care of the one body we're given. And instead of taking care of it with things like daily exercise, with something to challenge our brain, whether it's reading, meditation, yoga, mindfulness, just kind of taking care of it, we start to let it slip away. We kind of give in to these daily things like TV or Netflix or or whatever. We let that stress take over that carries over into food that carries over into our social relationship. And we kind of go on this downward spiral Mm -hmm. and it amazes me how the one simple thing that so many people just want to have gets squandered, gets taken advantage of by so many, they just let it slip away. Yep. Uh, And that's a great point. You know, we do have that spiraling, that snowball effect that can happen. Um, you know, the nice thing is, though, that what I've seen in practice and I've seen personally is that you can start to reverse that by yeah. using the same principles. You know, um, if you've seen, oh, gosh, was it 2014 Admiral McRaven's um, address at, at University of Texas, I believe it was uh, UT, you know, the idea of just start out every morning by making your bed and go from there. Yep. You, know, you do something positive and you start making steps toward that. Uh, it really does work. But like I said, it's very simple. It's not easy, but it's very simple. One of my uh, colleagues I've met out here in Arizona, Dr. Uh, Megan Rohde, you'll be really impressed with her. Um, mm-hmm. She is currently working on a certification to treat chronic pain patients. And she's found that patients with chronic pain, whether it be low back, neck, some other weird place, complex regional pain syndrome, whatever, if she gets them to do one thing, one new thing every day, they get better because they get in this cycle of, wow, this hurts so much. I can't do it. I can't do it. It hurts so much. I have this pain disorder. I have this, I have that. And people tend to embody their diagnosis. But when people start to realize, Hey, I can actually do this. And then the next day they push the envelope a little more and a little more things start to compound things gain speed. And the next thing you know, they're back to where they wanted to be 
but it all mm. started by one small thing. And maybe that small thing is, hey, today I'm going to get up. I'm going to walk to the fridge, get a glass of water, sit down and drink it. That could be it. Takes two, three minutes to do. Not that hard. But for some people who don't have that ability or have lost that ability, that's a huge deal. And maybe the next day they do it twice. It's that slow snowball effect to kind of reverse that downward spiral. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a, you hit at another amazing point there is that it gives them back some locus of control. Mm-hmm. You know, so often uh, people that have really significant chronic conditions lose so much of the control of their, their own lives, you know, right. as a result of those disease process. But once they start to find things they can control, it does start to help. Mm-hmm. For sure. Kind of going along with that, this has kind of been great advice to not only patients that we might treat, but also other PT students and other physical therapists. Do you have any other kind of advice or things that you've picked up along the years that you might offer to them? Um, well, we could probably make an entire podcast. (laughs) So feel free to cut me off at any time. Um, and as I'm dispensing my thoughts, um, let me frame it in the sense that I don't know what it's like to be a current PT student. I remember what it was like 20, couple years ago. Um, I know things have changed. Uh, it's even more somehow it's even more expensive than it was when I was in school. Um, stress is compounded. Certainly. Um, that being said, maybe I could give some folks some bits of advice that might help. Um, First, take advantage of the stuff that you are paying for. Mm -hmm. So your schools, number one, um, all have support services, whether they be learning support services, counseling services, mental health support, that's big. Um, And I think it's chronically underused by the folks that really need it the most. Yep. Um, Number two, and I can say this, coming from a small college and and I'm blessed to work at a place like this. My gosh, go talk to your professors. (laughs) Be amazed at how many issues that like we talked about snowballing and spiraling, right? You get somebody who does poorly on one assessment. If you come in talk to the prof and say, Hey, look, I'm having trouble here. I don't get this. Let them help you. Mm -hmm. If you do that, you're going to probably make that pivotal moment right there and start moving in a positive direction. Um, if you don't take advantage of that, uh, I'm not sure what else you could do. Uh, I can tell you anecdotally, uh, you've probably seen me in class before, Dan, um, all but jump up and down, uh, looking like you have somebody Sam going, please, somebody ask me a question because you get a sea of faces that look like this. Yep. <laughs> and I get it. You're sitting there for one, two, three hours at a time especially if it's heavy lecture as opposed to a lab material, it's not going to be the most actively engaging thing because as you know, PT school is a ton of information to learn, but you can't be afraid to tell your professors, I don't get this. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can't be afraid of your classmates going, dude, you should know this already. I've always said this. If you've got a question, I can guarantee you in that sea of people that you're sitting with, somebody else doesn't understand it either help them out, be the brave person and, and ask the question. Um, right. And those questions you, don't have to just be about what you're covering in class. It can be further stuff. Like, you know, you might mention something about cardiovascular response to exercise as it relates to running. And someone mm-hmm. might ask, well, what about with rowing or mountain biking or something like that? And, you know, that's kind of taking that knowledge and taking it a huge step further. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being curious and kind of being a lifelong learner, but 
I've noticed a lot of people seem to kind of forget that they think, okay, I go to school, I learn, I get my degree, life is good. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. Number one, um, another good piece of advice is try to make those connections on purpose if you can. Um, one of the things that you're going to find in this job in particular is that therapists are noted for being holistic thinkers. Mm -hmm. uh, and we try to look at the whole patient. We try to find out what's going on and we start making connections that other folks don't often get to. You need to start doing that practice in school. Um, and like you said, there's nothing wrong with being curious. Oh my gosh, please. One thing that I've never understood is, and I get there are certain parts of schooling that maybe isn't your bag. Not everybody's going to be a cardio geek. Not everybody's going to be a neuro uh, person, but find a chunk of what you're doing and it should inspire you. Um, there should be a part of you that's like, yes, I get to go to class today because I'm going to learn something cool. If you don't have that feeling with any of what you're doing, you need to rethink your career. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you graduate at what, 23, 24, right? And yeah. in, in the US, you're basically going to work until you're at least 67, if not 70 by the time y'all are done. That's decades. That's twice as long as you've been alive, probably. If you don't love what you do, you're going to hate going to work every morning. Don't do that to yourself. Right. Yeah. If you can't learn about it, how are you going to do it every single day for the rest mm -hmm. of your life? Yeah. And if you don't love it, you, you've got to find something that just excites the living dickens out of you and go after it. Yeah, for sure. And I think that kind of brings up one final huge point. Don't mm -hmm. be afraid to say, look, this isn't for me. Don't be afraid to say, look, yeah. I'm wrong. Don't be afraid to say, look, you know, I need to reverse this now because it's better to catch it mid midway through college, as hard as that might seem at the time, than to get five, six, seven years down the line and have everything hit the fan all at once, because it's a lot harder to go back after you've already finished than it would be to just shift in that moment. And there's nothing wrong with kind of having that gut check and that reality check with yourself and saying, look, this isn't for me. I'm just going to kind of course correct here and go about doing what's best for me. Absolutely. You know, I mean, that's a good life lesson. That's something you're going to do no matter what you're, you're looking at. Um, and I can tell you as a, as an advisor of tons of students over the years, I've had a few folks that, you know, made that gut check because maybe they weren't doing super well. Uh, and that sometimes is the case, but I also had one student in particular, uh, she was phenomenal. She had like a three, nine something in undergrad and said, look, I want to do something different. And I said, no, please don't leave. But no, please leave. Do what you got to go do. And uh, from what I've heard, she's doing fantastically in her chosen field. Yeah. So, and again, it's, there's nothing wrong with going out and doing what you want to do. And I think mm -hmm. that spe speaks a lot more about someone's character when they say, look, I know I'm capable of doing this, but I feel like this is not the right path for me. And they kind of steer themselves where they need to go. Um, so that's awesome advice. Really appreciate you sharing that. So You're welcome. for those listening, uh, stay tuned because Dr. Walker is going to be back with us on Wednesday to be discussing heart rate variability, HRV, this kind of 10 cent hot word. He's actually researched it quite a bit in his day. 
And he's one of the people that I go to for advice about this topic because it can be a little hard to understand sometimes. So make sure you stay tuned. You might want to subscribe so you don't miss that episode. If you're listening on iTunes, please leave a review for us and make sure you share with a friend so they can kind of hear some of this awesome advice as well. Dr. Walco, thank you again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.